As Kanda said, uh, my name is Matt Duell, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, so good to be up with you here this morning. And um, again, so grateful for those of you who are with us here for the first time, uh, joining us as guests. So good to have you. Uh, we don't take it lightly that you chose to come and spend some of your morning here with us. So thank you for being a part of the service here today. Um, we are going to be opening up God's Word, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you don't have a Bible at all, and you'd like to have one to hold, there's a couple of guys that are going to be coming up the aisle with Bibles. You can just slip your hand up. They will get you a copy of the Scriptures. I uh, would love for you to have that, uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that as a gift uh, from us today. Well, the last couple of weeks, Kondo led us through a series called Steady. And my goodness, what a gift. So grateful for him and his leadership and uh, insight and leading from the Lord and the ways in which he shared that the last couple of weeks, a, a series called Steady, where we were studying the dying art of faithfulness. And just so, so good. Such a great uh, way to set the pace and rhythm for the year. And if you don't know what I'm talking about and you haven't seen that or gotten a chance to catch up on that, I would encourage you to do so. You can go to the website, missionpoint.net, click on the messages tab. There's a button there that says archives and you can find the study series. Would love to invite you to take a look at that. But today I have the privilege of launching us into a new series that we are calling The Truth About. And our desire and our hope is to take uh, some of the big conversations that are sitting at center stage of the global conversation, the national conversation, and just begin to dive into them together. And, and we're going to team teach this series. I'll be up for a couple of weeks and then Kondo will be back up with us uh, for a bit. Uh, in a while, we'll rope young J Benjamin Hutton into this mess with us and hear from him as well. And our goal and our desire in this series is to, to take these issues and look at them through the lens of scripture. The hope and, and the desire is... Uh, Imagining a conversation with Jesus, if we were to talk with Jesus about things like guns and terror, violence, politics, refugees, our rights, what would Jesus have to say to us? We're imagining and we're leaning into a conversation where we say, Jesus, this, all this political stuff, it's crazy and this election cycle we're in is just a little bit nutty. I mean, what, what do we do with that as Christians? How do we respond? How should we react? And we imagine him saying, well, the truth about, and then filling in the blank for us. So we're going to dive in. Anybody nervous? I am. So, you know, you can pray for me. Pastors don't talk about this stuff. Come on, guys. No, we are excited and, and we feel that this conversation is so important because we believe we're in the midst of a perfect cultural storm that shows no signs of subsiding. Fear and division, politics and race, terror and violence together, some of the most tense and terrifying waves are hitting on our shores at the same time in a way that we really haven't seen before in history. And almost every day there is something new. There's, there's a new story. There's a new event. There's a new thing that happens. 
a headline to grab our attention and the cycle just repeats itself. The news, the media outlets, they go and they rush out and they begin to get the story and report the story and look at every angle that could possibly be shared about this thing, this event that is going on. And almost in parallel, the court of public opinion calls us all together via our favorite social media channels and platforms And we begin to share our opinions and our thoughts and our observations as the news breaks. Well, I just heard, and and I can't believe that. Oh my goodness, not again, not again. You, You know what caused this, right? You know, if we just did this, it would fix everything. And then right behind that, the comments start rolling in. And the debate begins to fire up and rage just a little bit. How could you possibly think that that would change anything? You and the people that think this way, that have that view, you are idiotic. Give me a break. Which lives matter? Well, black lives matter. And white lives matter. Blue lives matter. But, but what about Syrian lives? Should, should they matter? Well, well, I mean, maybe we should not let them be our problem. We have enough problems of our own. Maybe someone else can help figure out their issues. How do we keep ourselves safe? Well, let's build a wall and create a database and let's buy more guns and ammo and bunker down a bit and quick sell the stocks and liquidate the assets and get out a little bit more cash and tuck it under the mattress because this thing is going to collapse and what are we going to do when it collapses? Oh, it's definitely gonna collapse with him in charge. Uh Uh-oh, we can't have her in the White House. In fact, where, where she belongs is in prison. You know who belongs in prison is, is you and your outdated ideas. You know who's going to end up in prison is all the Christians. And oh, Jesus, if, if, if we can't have our America back the way that it used to be in the good old days and, and we can't have the, the, the peace and comfort that we used to, just please, just hurry on back. Come on back. Get us out of here. Save us. Send us to our mansions and our eternal glory so we can get out of this mess and not have to suffer. And the volume just keeps getting a little louder. And the tension just keeps getting turned a little tighter. And then Paris hits. The attacks in Paris definitely took the volume knob and turned it way up. It got everyone's attention in a new way, which is so interesting because terror has been at work for quite some time and is at work every day all over the globe. But for many people, this was the first time since 9-11 that the world went, at least our world, went all in on attention. Okay, you've got my attention. I am glued. I am watching. But the day before Paris, there was a double suicide bombing in Beirut, Lebanon, where 43 innocent people lost their lives. In April of last year, ISIS attacked a college in Kenya and killed 148 people, most of which were college students. And I'm guessing this may be the first time that some of you are hearing portions of that information. 
You see, the reality of the Paris attacks changed and hit our radar in a different way because it happened on the home turf. You may be, okay, how is Paris the home turf? Listen, I'm not as geographically challenged as it sounds. I realize Paris is in Europe. But that's more like us. That's more like our people. We relate more to those people. And in fact, many of us have been there. Many of us have spent time on the ground in Paris. We vacationed, we've honeymooned, maybe somewhere in Europe. We have relationships, we have family, we have friends over there. And so we have this context for those people and that land and that place because it's on our TV shows and it's on our movies. And we understand a bit about those people. So when attacks of that magnitude happen there, it has our attention. But yet in Lebanon, there were over 200 terrorist attacks and suicide bombings last year, most of which never hit our radar. Because, see, the things over there, those those happen way over there. Those happen in a different place, a different land, completely different cultures, different people. That happens with those people. That happens with them. That's their way of life. That's the way that they exist. That's not the way we exist. We exist in a more peaceful, controlled manner. So when it hits on our turf, suddenly we feel it and we hear about it. And then in December, the San... Bernardino shootings take place right in our backyard. And then the claims come rolling in. The enemy, this enemy, they are everywhere. This could happen anywhere, anytime. And so now we have an enemy, an enemy with a a name, an enemy that is threatening us at our doorstep. And then you add into that our struggles with race relations. And, And you pour in some of our religious liberties and freedoms and gun rights conversation. And then sprinkle in this election cycle. And we may just have the perfect storm. Very strong waves that are crashing in. The winds are picking up. So how do we act? How do we respond? How should we respond? Should we stay quiet? Should we just back off? How do we as Jesus followers step into the conversation? Or should we just trust the likes of another Facebook posting to save the world? Well, I think we can do better than that. And I think God's word has more for us. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you were with us in the fall you know that we spent about 87 weeks studying the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians in a series called Vantage. And it was awesome. We picked apart every word possible. And just to catch some of you up, I want to review just a couple of things that we learned. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who is in prison, in a Roman prison for his beliefs. He's writing this letter to the church or churches in Ephesus, which we now know to be modern day Turkey. And this book, uh, this letter is broken up into six chapters for us. In the first three chapters, Paul writes all about our identity, who we are in Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus with your life, if you claim him as your savior and you have trusted him with the forgiveness of your sin, this is who you are. 
I want to give just a a few uh, statements, a couple of bullet point blurbs of promises and things and truths that we learned in chapters one through three about who we are and our identity in Christ. It says, first, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us. He adopted us to be sons and daughters. And I love this. In in that particular uh, passage, it says, in accordance with his pleasure and will. He came after us as sons and daughters, not just because it was his plan, not just because it was his will, but because it was his pleasure that he came after us and adopted us as sons and daughters. In him, we have redemption and forgiveness. He lavished on us all wisdom and understanding. He marked us with a seal. He guaranteed an inheritance. He made us alive. He saved us. He brought us near. He himself is our peace. And he's given us access to the Father. He's made us fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's own household. And in Jesus, we have been given a permission, an approach, an access to approach God with freedom and confidence. This is who we are in Jesus. This is what we have. This is our identity. This is our access. And in these three chapters, Paul lays it out for us. Now, chapter four, verse one, let's read together. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Again, Paul is in a Roman prison being held captive and being oppressed for his beliefs, for the very fact that he's out there going after people to let them know about the gospel. Say, hey, you need to know about this hope, this love, this Jesus. So he's in prison and he's just pinned these three chapters on our identity in Christ. And then chapter four, verse one represents this turning point, this corner in the letter of Ephesians where he's saying, okay, now that we've established who you are, let's go get to work. Here's what you need to do. And he opens with this statement. I urge you, I plead you, I beg of you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Those first three chapters, I I just laid out for you what you have been given in Jesus. He took you from death to life. He took you from shame and sorrow to forgiveness. He took you from alien and stranger to citizen, not only a citizen, but a member of God's own household. He's placed a seal on you. Nothing can take the promises away. You have a guaranteed place at the table and an inheritance waiting for you now with this life, this life that you have here and now, whatever days God grants you to continue to walk this earth, I am begging you, please live a life worthy of the calling you have received in Jesus. That word worthy comes from the Greek word axios. We have an English version of that axiom, which means to be of equal weight on both Sides. And what Paul is saying is, you have the most incredible, beautiful, powerful promises on this side. Now let the worthiness and the weight of your life begin to balance the scale. May you not just partake in blessings and promises someday, but may you make them active and alive here and now. May you put these promises to work through the context of your life. 
Okay, that sounds, that sounds great. So what should we do? Verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be humble, gentle, patient, bear with one another in love. That's, that's it. See, I don't think anyone in this room has a problem with that list. I mean, humble, gentle, patient, that's, that's the preposterous. How dare he? No one's going to stand up and protest these things. We smile and we nod and we agree and we go, yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah, humble, gentle, patient, love one another. That's good. Honey, I think this is another one of those love one another messages. I've already heard this one. Come on, preacher man. Don't you have something else for us? See, the problem is, is that we sit here and we nod along and we agree with this idea. But there is a deficit of this outside of these doors. Be humble, be gentle. Hey, that's fine. I'm good with that. Hey, I heard there is a senator that's proposing a bill for stricter gun laws. What? What a moron. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. These guys, they drive me nuts. If I had a moment with that senator, I'd invite him to the gun show and I'd introduce him to Smith and Wesson. Come on. I know that was super impressive, but just calm down. Come on. Be humble, gentle, patient. I'm so tired of hearing about blank lives matter. All they're doing is just causing more trouble. Yeah, but don't you think these, these are people that are grieving and they're trying to figure out and understand some of the problems? And, you know, I don't care. I'm just, I'm just tired of it. I don't want to hear it anymore. I wish they would just keep it to themselves. Be humble, gentle, patient, bear with one another in love. Oh, honey, John posted another thing on Facebook about supporting the refugees. Oh, you're kidding me. Doesn't he know when you support the refugees? It's like making a deposit right into the banks of ISIS. Is that true? It's totally true. There was one of those articles, 17 things you should know about ISIS. That was number nine. I mean, it was so clear. We've got to be careful with these things. Yeah, but John's like a good guy. We go to church with him. Shouldn't we talk and hear what he has? I don't want to talk. If he's posting stuff like that, his political views must be, uh-uh, I, no, 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 no. Don't want to talk to him. See, in the context of church and being completely humble and gentle and being patient and bearing with one another in love, it can, it can work in a moment like this, but it doesn't feel like it works so well out there. And yet this is what Christ has called us to as his followers. He wants us to be different. To Paul's audience, the word Humble, the idea of humility, was not a welcomed concept. In a Greco-Roman context, the word humility meant to be slave-like, and that was the opposite of anything that they wanted to be like. What they appreciated were these great-souled, complete, self-sustaining men, someone of great control and confidence that communicated, I don't need anything, and I definitely don't need you. But Jesus calls us to be different. In one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're actually going to look at that. We're going to go between this and Ephesians. So Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there and put a thumb there, that would be great. 
But in the Sermon on the Mount, many people believe this is one of Jesus' um, greatest sermons and some of the clearest instructions for us on, on how to live as his followers. Some really, really practical stuff. And, and in this sermon, he starts off <coughs> excuse me, with a checklist of sorts. And interestingly enough, the checklist is very similar to the list that Paul has laid out for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means humble. And it is the first thing on Jesus' list. Being poor in spirit means connecting with the realizations that your gifts and the uh, blessings that you have come from the Father. (coughs) Sorry, guys. (coughs) 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 Okay. Anybody got a diffuser in here? All right. I know we have about a hundred of them. Come on. Yeah, I was so close to getting over this thing and it's hitting me again. Okay. Being poor in spirit means collecting, connecting with the realization that all of your gifts and blessings come from the grace of God. That was weird. <laughs> Man. <laughs> Having a super poor in spirit moment right now, let me tell you. Oh my goodness. Maybe that was it. All right, here we go. <laughs> Being poor in spirit means that we are starting with an empty cup. We are coming to the table saying, not look at me, look at all I have to offer. I'm a pretty big deal. I know a lot of things, but rather I'm empty and I'm open to God and to his word, to his will. Poor in spirit comes with a strength and an inner peace that is not found in those who are proud. Poor in spirit is someone who's open to repentance and realizes his need for a savior. Versus pride produces anger and misery and the desire for revenge, especially when we are offended. Poor in spirit brings humility and peace and an openness and an opportunity for conversation. Be humble. Be gentle. Again, this is not a popular word or concept, and it doesn't help that scripture interchanges this word gentle with meek. Oh, it just feels like, oh, we just went from bad to worse. Gentle, meek. And this is especially hard for guys. Men are supposed to be strong. This feels like something that ladies would do, but it's not the case. Gentleness, meekness talked about here in the scriptures is anything but weak. It's actually a picture of strength under control. And Jesus sets the example for us here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. I am gentle, meek, and humble of heart. If you call a man that willingly walked into his arrest 
his trial, his torture, and his execution weak, then I don't have much for you. Jesus was the ultimate example of strength under control. Jesus did not practice retaliation. He practiced forgiveness. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Despite circumstances, despite adversity, despite hardship, be gentle, meek, be self-controlled. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This idea of being patient and bearing with one another in love, it sounds like a bit of a concession here. Like, okay, just bear with one another. Like, all right, you don't have to like everyone, but just love everyone in Jesus' name. We'll be fine. But listen, it's far more than tolerating. It's actually meant to be something that is very active and alive. Jesus' entire life and death is this repetitive display of patience and love. People misunderstanding him, his own followers not getting it right, enduring torture and death for no good reason. And yet all along the way, he is lovingly, patiently reminding, refocusing. No, it's not about that. It's, it's about this. No, no, no. I, di- I didn't come for that. I came for this. No, no, no. That, that, this is me. That's not me. This is me. We continue Ephesians chapter four, verse three. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Paul starts with urging us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And he continues in verse three with make every effort to keep the unity. The emphasis in the language here is one of urgency. As if a whole lot hangs in the balance of us getting this right. Hurry, make haste, run towards unity. But that's not what we do. That's not what I do. We run towards our opinions. We run towards our rights. We run towards our safety. We run towards our security. We run away from whatever looks or sounds scary only to resurface when we found an article or some sort of something that validates our position of fear. Gang, we know the world is slipping away. If you are a follower in Jesus, this should not be a surprise to you. Jesus told us that this was going to happen. Jesus warned us that this was coming. And all through the scriptures, we see signs pointing us to a day when the world is going to get a little bit crazier and a little bit crazier. And yet what we are called to is not to run, not to hide, not to bunker down, not to divide but to run towards unity of the spirit through a bond of peace. 
And listen, there's nothing wrong with opinions. Opinions are great. Ask my wife, I have a million of them. And rights are a beautiful thing. We're actually gonna talk more about rights next week. Love is a huge promoter and proponent of rights. But the question is, are we promoting and gripping ever so tightly to the things that are bringing us together or the things that are tearing us apart? And are our rights and opinions like a stack of bricks where we are putting together a wall? Rights, opinion, right, opinion, opinion. And we are building this wall to protect us and to separate us of us and them, us and them. Let's just build up this wall. You see, Jesus came to tear down dividing walls. We've talked about this Before in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. In him we have peace. And he came to tear down dividing walls of hostility. He came to bring people groups together. In fact, two people groups that had generations and generations and generations of hate and anger and terror built up and all the reasons in the world to fight and to have vengeance and to pull each other apart. But Jesus came and said, no, in my world, it's going to be different. I'm going to tear down this wall. I'm going to create access. No more exclusive access. I'm gonna actually open up worldwide access so that through me, you can come to the Father. So this is open for everyone. I'm tearing this wall down. And yet we are often working and contributing to a system and a way of thinking that's putting the bricks back in the wall. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. I love this call towards peace. Paul is pleading with us to be peacemakers for the sake of unity. And it's not the first time he's done that. In fact, throughout scriptures, numerous times, he calls for peace. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then Jesus brings it up again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be children of God. Now, much like our words, gentle, humble, meek can be confused. I want to talk about what we're talking about here with a peacemaker. The peacemaker is actually a bit of a fighter. It's not someone who's just mild and smoothing things over and sweeping things under the rug. Hey, just peace, you know, it's not that. It's actually someone who's willing to make a little bit of trouble for the sake of peace. It's someone who's honest with relationships and honest with the state of affairs and is able to walk in and say, hey, there is tension in the room. Let's figure it out. There's something going on here. There's a divide. I'm watching you pull each other apart. Why are you doing that? A peacemaker is literally someone that takes the pieces and tries to make peace with it. Why can't you look him in the eye? Why don't you call your brother? Why do you talk to your wife that way? What is the deal? Why are you so angry? Why can you not let that go? Back at Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live 
at peace with everyone. I want to highlight this phrase, if it is possible. Sometimes making peace, total peace, is not possible. I realize that. Paul obviously realized that. But as far as it depends on you, you should try. Because at the very least, you need to be able to make peace within yourself. You can't be a very effective peacemaker if you don't have peace within yourself. And so what that means is you may need to forgive someone. You may need to let something go. You may need to release a grudge or a plan for revenge and getting back at someone. You may need to just drop that. And it doesn't mean that you excuse everything bad or evil that has happened to you and has hurt you. Those things have truly hurt you and they have caused pain. It doesn't mean you just carelessly open yourself up and say, hey, everything's okay because it may not be okay. But if you're letting this thing, this relationship, this moment of tension continue to tear and pull you apart, you're allowing it to own you in a way that you shouldn't. But if you can take steps towards forgiving someone in your own heart, you're taking steps towards becoming a peacemaker. Which means you're taking a step towards the life that Jesus wants you to live. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This unity of the spirit is a calling to be a part of one body. Verse four, the spirit Verse five, one Lord talking about Jesus. Verse six, one God. What Paul is saying here, this idea of unity, it's at the very core in nature and it is central to the Holy Trinity. It's one of the defining characteristics of the Holy Trinity. And for us who have put our faith in Jesus, who follow him, we have been invited and grafted into this body with Christ at the head. We are his body And this plea and this call to unity is something that's eternal. It's always been, it will always be. And the more that we can put that on display, I believe, here on earth, here and now, the more we show the strength of the body of Christ. The more we put on display something so beautiful, something so filled with hope, something that can begin to make sense in the midst of chaos. Paul goes on in the following verses to talk about growing this unity and how Jesus has gifted certain people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, to teach the body and to help grow us in this idea of unity so that one day we would be mature and just be fully living this out. I want to pick us up again in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. And blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Right now, what I see, what Kondo sees, what our our leadership sees, 
We see the waves coming and crashing in, and we see the winds blowing through, and we're seeing people being picked up and carried off. And we desire to create a place, an environment that we would be uniters, that we would grow in our sense of unity, in our sense of body, in our responsibility, responsibility here and now to be the body of Christ, a unified body of Christ, that we wouldn't dive into things that pull us apart, but we would be all about the things that bring us together. July 27th, 1996, uh, I was 19 years old and I uh, graduated, graduated high school the year before. And I was working a couple of part-time jobs, one of which was this unpaid, unofficial sort of internship with CNN. Long story short, uh, I met a CNN camera crew at an event, and I was there shooting a video just for fun with my friends, and we connected, and they used the video we were making to be a part of their piece, and, and through that, um, developed a friendship uh, with this crew, particularly this one camera man named Rick. And I begged and pleaded and begged and pleaded, please, please, please give me a job. Give me a job. I want to work with you guys. This is so awesome. What you do is so incredible. I'd love to be a part of it. And Rick's like, oh, you don't want to work in news. You don't want, to, you don't want this. You don't. No, I really, really do. I really, really do. And he said, all right, tell you what. Um, I fly all over the world and do all these features and things. But a lot of things I do, you know, we do in Atlanta. They don't like to travel for everything, save some money. So some of the things we do in Atlanta, we're here for. So how about this? I'll call you every time we're doing a shoot in Atlanta, and, and you can come out, and you can hang out and help carry gear and do that, and, and that would be, that'd be great. And so I did, and I loved it, and I did that for a better part of a year. And anytime Rick and his crew were in town and they had a shoot, I would go, and I would just carry the lights and the tripods and set the whole thing up and, and be on scene. And I had access to these unbelievable events and these moments with people, and it was so cool, and I loved it. And I'd go get people water and coffee and just a really general production assistant sort of role. And then this night in July, we were downtown at the CNN Center, uh, me and Rick and my brother Mike, and we were there uh, to be a part of the Olympics. The Olympics were in town, in Atlanta, the 96 games, uh, and all downtown. It was awesome. There were all these things. I mean, just concerts and, um, you know, really cool, different entertainment things and food and just all over the place, all over the city. It was just this constant, long, really cool event to be a part of. And so we were there and we were kind of taken into sights and we come out of the CNN Center and instantly I realized something is wrong. I can hear people screaming. I can see people starting to run towards us and, and I can see people running in other directions. And then I can see smoke in the distance coming up from the park. And then I hear a man say, it's a bomb, a bomb, a bomb went off. And Rick, who had been a part of CNN for quite some time and he had filmed in active war type situations, his instincts just kicked in and he grabbed me and my brother by the shoulders and said, come on, we gotta go. And we grabbed the camera and as everyone came running out of the park, we went running in. And so we just start filming everything that we can see and, and we're, we're coming in and there's mobs of people coming out and I'm seeing people are bleeding and people are helping people carry people out and, and there's, there's crying and there's screaming and you can smell the, the smoke and the, the sulfur and sirens and police cars pulling in and SWAT teams and ambulances are starting to pull up. 
and, and Rick is just shooting and filming like crazy and, and I'm kind of grabbing him and look over there and over there and I'm just looking for things that seem to be compelling and part of what it looks like to tell the story. And my adrenaline is just going nuts. And we get right up to the, the entrance, the, the part of the park where the bomb went off. And at that point, the police have started roping off and they, they start pushing us back. And so for about three, four or five minutes, we're just standing there, just capturing whatever we can capture. And then Rick says, I've got to get this tape up to the newsroom. They, they don't even know we're down here. They're going to want to get this on air immediately. Uh, and it was, you know, we were in a time where you couldn't just Wi-Fi, just beam everything up. Like there was actually a physical tape that had to get up there and be played. And he said, you're not going to be able to get through. They're going to have the building locked down. I'm going to have to take the tape. You stay here. You keep shooting. Okay. So we did that. And so for the rest of the night, that was kind of the rhythm that we developed. My brother and I would stand on this corner and we would film things and we would interview people. And Rick would come down every 20, 30 minutes and he'd pull the tape out of the camera, put a new one in and he'd run back upstairs, get it to the newsroom and they would just start airing everything that we were capturing. Later that night, they moved us to the hospital, Grady Memorial Hospital, where they had taken the injured People And, you know, we were there for the press conference moment where the chief of surgery is coming out, updating people what's going on. And when it was all said and done, 111 people were injured and two people lost their lives. And about two weeks later, I got a note in the mail and it was from a CNN producer just thanking me for my work. And inside was a check for $300. I remember feeling this really odd feeling of like, I don't like this. This feels weird. People lost their, their lives and I just got my first video paycheck ever. And I remember feeling this tension. And then the more as I was around news, I think I started to understand some of Rick's initial discouragement of you don't want to work in the news is just seeing discrepancies in stories. Situations and things I was part of that I saw with my own eyes, but then I would see it play out on TV. And I'm like, well, that's different. That's not exactly the way that happened. Not big lies or anything, but just little tweaks to make a story a bit more dramatic. And it wasn't long after that that I, I just began to connect the reality that a big news day is a profitable news day. And a slow news day is not. And oftentimes in the big news days, there are people that are suffering and experiencing tragedy, and yet there are people who are profiting from that. Now, please, please hear me out on this. There are people, and I know people, wonderful, great people, honest, real journalists, people who love and have a passion for the news, who have a passion for journalism, and their life is all about uncovering and telling and conveying the truth. Those people absolutely exist. But the system of the news, that's where it gets a little bit trickier. Ted Turner. If you don't know Mr. Turner, he is the man who came up with the idea for uh, CNN and launched CNN, the first 24-7 news station. Many years prior to that, though, he attended a conservative college and was a proud member of the Young Republicans. He majored in classical literature until he and his father had a bit of a falling out and he changed his major to economics. He got kicked out of school after some controversy 
And after his father committed suicide, he inherited the Turner Outdoor Advertising Company, which was a billboard company worth about a million dollars. He explosively grew that business uh, in the Atlanta and the whole Southeast area. And he eventually bought a UFH, just cheap UHF uh, TV station in Atlanta. And people said he was so foolish for doing, but he had a passion and wanted to be a part of the TV game. He bought this station and he called it, made the call sign WTCG, which stood for Watch This Channel Grow. And that was Ted. This just sort of big mouth, he's known as the mouth of the South, big mouth guy who began to have a growing sort of liberal stance on life. And he had this pride about him that he was going to succeed and he did. Grew this thing, turned it into WTBS, the Turner Broadcasting System, where he created one of the first successful mergers of a UHF station onto cable television. And in that moment, he realized that cable TV was starved for content. And he saw an open space to create what he thought would be a profitable thing, a 24-7 news station. And he did so in creating CNN. Through the years, CNN's gone through a variety of mergers and splits, most notably with MGM Studios in Hollywood, AOL, AOL Time Warner. AOL sort of died off, they went away, then Time Warner, which is still the ownership group today. Ted no longer plays an active role in the empire he created, but before he left, he walked away with $2 billion that he had amassed. Many people believe it was up to $9 billion uh, if it hadn't been for some of the implosion of AOL. Rupert Murdoch. If you don't know Rupert, he is known as the creator of Fox News. Mr. Murdoch is an Australian-born businessman who inherited Australian News Limited from his father, which has its roots in the newspaper industry. He left Oxford at age 21 to go home and run the family business when his father passed away. In the 60s and 70s, Rupert put his support by many liberal, behind many liberal Australian politicians. He often supported these politicians through his newspaper, The Australian, publishing editorials that included the support of universal free health care, recognition of the People's Republic of China, and public ownership of Australia's oil, gas, and mineral resources. He moved to New York in 1974, where he expanded his newspaper empire from Australia to London and the United States. Upon moving to the United States, he began to build some strategic political allies, at which point he began to quiet some of his liberal stances. In 1985, he became a naturalized U.S. citizen to meet the compliances needed to be a part of TV ownership, and then he acquired 20th Century Fox. He established the News Corporation, and by the year 2000, had amassed over 200 media companies and publications. In addition to the Fox empire, he had the Wall Street Journal, which he purchased for $5.5 billion, the New York Post, the London Times, the London Sun, MySpace, DirecTV, and TiVo, just to name a few. And in 1996, he decided to launch a 24-7 news station, and thus the Fox News Channel was born. He rebranded 20th Century Fox to be 21st Century Fox, and he then divided the company into two divisions, 21st Century Fox and Fox Entertainment and News Corp, which held Fox News and all of the other media outlets. Now, Rupert, who's a bit more private and perhaps more wise than Ted Turner with his mouth, has danced a fine line of political alignment his whole, his whole life. 
But he has thrown money and resources both directions. When it came time to launch Fox News, the choice was clear. CNN already owned the left-leaning perspective on the news. There needed to be something for the right, so he created it. However, if you take a short walk over to the other side of his business, Fox Entertainment, you will find what has been the most liberal, push the line of what you could get fined by the FCC programming you will find on television in the last 30 years. Started with The Simpsons, which pushed a social commentary through an animated series, and now we are treated to shows like Lucifer, a show about Satan being bored with hell, so he moves to Los Angeles, which I'm sure is super good. Listen, I don't know Rupert Murdoch, and I've never met him or talked to him, but I do know this. The man did not amass $12 billion only because he's super passionate about fair and balanced news. He created a very effective system of amassing wealth through his media ventures. And what Rupert Murdoch know and what Ted Turner know is that when the noise gets a little bit louder, they make more money. So the louder, the more bold, the more flamboyant the commentator can be, the better. And if we tweak and twist things just a little bit, just to raise the drama of the story, eh, so be it. When Donald Trump walked away from the Republican debate hosted by Fox this week, and Fox News CEO Richard Ailes found himself in boiling hot water, it did not have as much to do with the fact that Donald wasn't going to be there as it did to the bottom line of their advertising dollars. Their advertising plummeted the moment that Donald said, I'm out. As soon as Donald, the front runner, left and all the millions of eyeballs that he took with him, they lost advertising revenue. Here's my point. Should we be informed? Yes. Should we educate ourselves on what's going on in the world and, and look into our next president and who we should vote for? Absolutely. Should we form an opinion around these things? Of course. Should we watch the news? Yes. Do I care which news you watch? No. But I want you to be aware that it is a system, a system that profits off dividing people. A system that works best when it's pulling people apart. But please, please, please live a life worthy of the calling you have received in Christ Jesus. Please make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through a bond of peace. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by uh, wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We have work to do. Jesus called us to enter into this crazy world as peacemakers and leaders of truth and love. But there are people scheming for your attention. There are crafty, crafty people that are trying to buy and consume the space in between your ears. 
They wanna fill your head and your heart in a way that will lead you to consume just a little bit more. And the best way to do that is to hold on to your attention. And you know what holds on to your attention really well? Fear. If you're afraid that ISIS is in your neighborhood and the next president's going to crash the economy or take us straight to war and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, then you will keep watching, you will keep clicking, you will keep sharing, and you will keep the systems of the world alive and well. And in the meantime, you'll be so filled with tension and angst and noise, you'll forget about anything to do with unity. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. Who has time for that? I need to protect myself. I need to defend my position. I need to bunker down. But if you can learn to edit, if you can learn to filter the noise, the lies, if you can look to God's word for his promises and perspective on what is true, it says in Romans to not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Being citizens of God's kingdom, being part of the kingdom of God is about being a part of a system that has no agenda other than to love and to forgive and to redeem and to be filled with grace and peace and to be hospitable and to open our doors and to open our arms. The world is dying for that. And shouldn't God's people be the most uniting people on the planet? Shouldn't we lead The way, Jesus has not told us what position to pick. But he has certainly led us to the posture that he wants us to pursue. What can you do to run after unity in the midst of division this week? How can you show gentleness in an abrasive season? Humility in an oppositional time. How can you show patience in aggressiveness in an aggressive time? How will you live worthy in the way that you use your life to unite? Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the truth of your word. And Lord, we thank you for your promises. For those of us who follow you with our lives, thank you for all that we have the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the power, the wisdom, the fact that we are sealed in you, that we are guaranteed an inheritance, a place at the table. But God, now lead us to be people that use the lives that we have here and now to be difference makers, to be game changers, to come in with this spirit of unity To go after the issues in the way that unites. To not be people that pull apart and divide, but be people that bring together. God, help us to be humble, to be gentle, to be meek, to be patient, to bear with one another in love. And God, in that, that we could lead the way and just shine a huge spotlight on the body of Christ and what it means to truly live and follow you. We love you. We thank you so much for your love for us in Christ's name.